turn in the back of these same books to the Belgic Confession of Faith. The Belgic Confession of Faith. Article 31, which is page 867. Page 867. Article 31, the Belgian Confession of Faith. It says here, We believe that ministers of the word of God, elders and deacons, ought to be chosen to their offices by a legitimate election of the church, with prayer in the name of the Lord, and in good order, as the word of God teaches. So everyone must be careful not to push himself forward improperly, but he must wait for God's call so that he may be assured of his calling and, uh, and be certain and sure that he is chosen by the Lord. As for the ministers of the word, they all have the same power and authority, no matter where they may be, since they are all servants of Jesus Christ, the only universal bishop and the only head of the church. Moreover, to keep God's holy order from being violated or despised, we say that everyone ought as much as possible to hold the ministers of the word and elders of the church in special esteem because of the work they do and be at peace with them without grumbling, quarreling, or fighting. This is our confession of faith. Let's turn our attention to Hebrews, Hebrews 13, which is a passage that's often read in relation to Article 31 and is underlying especially that closing section there, Hebrews 13 at verse 17. That's page 1010 in your pew Bibles. It says there, Obey your leaders and submit to them for their keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you soon. And another reading that we, uh, we touched on earlier today, but we'll, we'll refresh in James 3, just a few pages over, page 1012. It says there in James chapter 3, at verse 13 through 18, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is God's holy word. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
we believe that the spiritual leaders of Christ's holy church should be carefully chosen and then carefully obeyed, carefully followed for Jesus' sake. This is the structure uh, that we have read, and this is the pattern of the New Testament. And we want to look at this thought of carefully choosing <coughs> leaders and the universal gospel ministry, and then the careful obedience and even esteem that God desires for this purpose. And the two opening paragraphs of our confession, they summarize so well what is distilled through the epistles regarding the way that we carefully choose church leaders. Right on the surface, we see that God on high, God on the throne in heaven, Jesus in his authority, he values a different set of values than what is common in the world. And so believers must nominate church leaders according to the Christ-like spiritual character that makes them fit for leadership in his spiritual body. And we see these summarized in the New Testament, and they're summarized in our confession. A man that has humility and sound doctrine, that, that lives the life of self-sacrifice according to the cross, shows self-control and sober-mindedness, respectable and hospitable character, faithful and tested. These are summary words that come to mind from 1 Timothy and from Titus, the traits you know, of an elder and of a deacon, and elsewhere um, are related to sort of the picture of church leadership. And already in the last article, we compared this distinctly Christian and biblical priority up against the, the pragmatism of our time, the, the want of convenience in the church, what's comfortable, and even the de facto substitute. You know, just this is what happened because this is who was here, or this is what happened. It's just, you know, there was a need and someone stepped in and it, we really never discussed it. We just got on with what we were doing. The de facto substitute ideas of leadership that we do without thinking you know, about the biblical standards or that we crave in the flesh and we pursue out of our own desire and want. We want the person that we want and we're not really interested if there's any biblical question about it because this is what we want. A person who is charismatic and inspirational or someone who is, you know, very business savvy and very shrewd. Um, you know, no doubt they'll be able to lead in the church too. Or they're a person that already has, you know, power and influence. And uh, we, want, we want them to bring some of that to the position, you know, to, I guess, to legitimize the church. Or to, you know, as we see it, to strengthen the church. Um, or they're the loudest voice. And daring to oppose them brings nothing but misery, so better to let them have their way, uh, or there's going to be an explosion. This is often how church leaders are made, and that's a scary thought. Um, or they're the only one who's willing to do the job, or the only one who's available to do the job. It's, you know, it's often that these are the answers to how did, you know, how did the church get like this? You know, how did the leadership get into the position it's in or the church 
get into the place that it's in now? And, and these are some of the answers. Um, but we confess, right, it's not, it's not our goal to merely do what is practical, what is easiest, what's outwardly impressive. Uh, it's not of first importance to highlight, you know, relevance to the culture or equality or inclusiveness or anything else that's, you know, the, the prize of our time or the fad of our time in churches. You know, right now it seems to be, for some churches, like a big feather in their cap. Like, oh, we've got the gayest, most lesbian bishop ever. And it's like, what are we talking about? You know, why are we, why is this a virtue? Why? Well, because the Bible doesn't even matter anymore. It's, we, it's all our wants. It's all posturing and positioning. But I feel like, you know, for a couple decades it's been that way. Like, how can we one-up, uh, you know, to go further, you know, sh to do something shocking or to get attention? It has very little to do with the Scripture. Think about this thought. I think that this holds up. If we picked by the standards of the world, we would never have picked Christ crucified. Isn't that what Isaiah says in chapter 53? That he had no beauty to attract us to him. And that he was despised and forsaken and, and you know, looked on as trash, more or less, is the way that Isaiah describes it. Christ and him crucified. We, he's the king of the church. He's the head of the church. If we had our way, we would never have picked him. And, and that should tell us enough about how we need to dump our own attitudes and our own wants and our own cravings and think differently about how the church works, about how leadership in the church is chosen, about how leadership in the church is seen and how they're followed. It's our unapologetic aim to be faithful to God's word. That would be our aim. It's our goal to be a spiritual body that makes obedient spiritual actions by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's our goal to obey King Jesus and to please him above ourselves. So we have to really examine and question our wants and our attitudes related to church leadership. And it's worth talking about. It's, it's very practical in the same way that, that you know, the tree and its fruit is practical, like we were talking about this morning. To, to do spiritual things in a spiritual way for God's glory, not our own glory. You know, there's, there's many tests that come this way. So we look at the process that's summarized in Article 31. It speaks about a legitimate election of the church for our leaders. And remember, this is centuries-old language, so we're not, we're not just talking about majority vote democracy, but we're talking rather about about a congregational like-mindedness and a congregational unity that results in men of the right character and also unity of purpose within the body done prayerfully, done according to God's word, not done as a power play by the leadership and not done as a power play by the people, but done together, right? Done as one body. That's that's the nature of a legitimate election that's done prayerfully, that's done orderly, that's done according to the principles of God's word. But our church, you know, is not a, a congregational church. That is, it's not 51% majority decides all things. Properly speaking, 
the leaders of the church choose the next leaders, but to do things decently and in order, a congregational vote serves the purpose of, of whole body unity. And so there's, there's more to it than meets the eye than just democratic principles, right? A legitimate election. That's what Americans hear. This was written in 1600s, uh, 15 and 1600s, you know, Belgium, Netherlands, you know, like the, this, is, this is not written in our time. So we have to hear a little differently um, where our confessions are coming from, right? The, the Heidelberg and the Belgian confession, you know, you have, you have a different origin for, uh, for these, and yet, you know, we're very comfortable with those principles. So uh, we, have, we have this, this pathway of um, election and pathway of service for leaders that when done in good order um, and according to God's word is well done. When done prayerfully is well done. Um, then it's not unspiritual men, or women for that matter in our time, it's not unspiritual people grasping at their own way, but rather Jesus, by way of you know, the spiritual like-mindedness of the church, is governing his church uh, in plain and holy unity of purpose. And that's a beautiful thing, that's our desire. Not only should the church be careful in choosing men, but men must be humble and careful about their own ambitions and aspirations to lead. Merely wanting to serve doesn't mean that one is authorized you know, to serve. I can't, you know, I can't just go operate the ferry that goes to Fire Island because I want to. You know, I, that's, you know, the, 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 the authority to do that is not there. I can't go operate the toll booth or what, you know, or whatever the 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 drawbridge, or you know, I can't I can't go operate it just because I you know I want to, um, and so it is that just wanting to serve in the church, uh, which is the 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 zealous and sincere desire of many, it doesn't make them automatically able, and it doesn't make them automatically authorized with no input from anyone else, and this is how this is how it often can be in the church. I want to do, I want to serve. Uh, but, but there's more to it than that. And it serves God to do so humbly. It serves God to do so in a way that, that involves the input and involves the, the efforts of others with us, both to evaluate our own motives and our own skills and also to do it in coordination and good order and unity within the church. This is a very important distinction and safeguard between our congregation and in the way that it functions and independent churches in practice. In practice, there are safeguards between aspiring to leadership and leading. But in independent churches, and there are many, someone has but to aspire to office and then say to people around them, if you oppose me serving, you oppose God because God told me to do it. If you oppose me preaching, you are opposing God. You're opposing the Holy Spirit because he told me to. And how, how do we defend the church against this kind of attitude? 
which is foisted on us a lot. And I have people tell me on a regular basis, you know, God told me this and God told me that. And I say, oh, if I, if I disagree, am I disagreeing with the Holy Spirit himself? If I disagree, am I going against God? That maybe there's more to it than just God told me I should be a preacher or God told me I should be a leader or God said I should run, you know, such and such ministry. Are we defenseless against this? How do we, how do we process these things? Well, when a man desires to serve and aspires to church leadership, he should cultivate, for one, godly character that demonstrates, like we read in James, that, that the wisdom that they have is from heaven and not some earthly, unspiritual, you know, zealous desire. Uh, but it is rather truly wisdom from heaven, and it shows in its purity, in its meekness, in its peaceable nature. Uh, it, it's demonstrated that this is from God. And when a, man, uh, when a man has that desire and the church around them, which is believers full of the Holy Spirit and particularly those who are already qualified for service and already identified as leaders, when the church affirms that way that a man is fit for service, then, then they ordain such a man to serve. And that outwardly, properly, and in an orderly way, confirms that the person's internal calling is not just, you know, some, some personal desire, but it, it, fits, it fits with what others in spiritual wisdom also see. So that, so that it's, it's not only fitting to the individual, but it's fitting within the, the congregation. And that confirms for us, it's not just people jockeying for position, looking for dominance or self-glorifying attitudes, but then it's clear that the Holy Spirit of Christ is guiding the church. You know, I, I know about this process because I went through it, right, when I began training for ministry. For one, one thing that, that helps me is that when I thought to myself for the first time, you know, I think, I think that I'm... I think that I'm convicted. I need to go into the pastoral ministry. I didn't know that I would end up in West Sayville. I didn't say to myself, you know, there's the, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take over, the, you know, such and such a church. That didn't even enter my mind. I had to say in humility, if the Lord will send me, right? And what if he sent me elsewhere? And what if he opened up, you know, a different, I had to say to myself, I'm ready to be sent where he, where he desires. Well, that's, that's you know, a, a scary thing in some ways, right? Or that's, that's, and it's, an act, it's a matter of humility to say, I'm not going to say where I go. God is going to show where the opening will be, where the opportunity should be. I think that's important because that, that's not, for one, putting yourself on you know, to a church. Well, now here we are about to start the 16th year coming up in January. And, uh, and that's, you know, it's a very interesting thing. So how does a minister become a minister, right? How does one become a church leader? Well, for one, I did not expect to go into the ministry as a young man and then, and then very unexpectedly started to say, you know, really, truly, I do have the sort of internal aspiration uh, in my own heart to go into the ministry. Well, I talked about it with my family, who was Christian? I talked about it with, uh, with you know, teachers in my life who were also Christian, and, and they said, well, yeah, we could, we could see that 
as fitting, as right. And so there wasn't a, a, you know, immediate, there wasn't an immediate resistance there. Then confirmed and supported by the leaders of my own church who directed that my training at the right time should, you know, should go forward. It should become formalized. And they would be the sponsors of it. Then I had to be confirmed by the leaders of other churches who don't, you know, no one can twist their arm to say, you know, here, you know, there's no pressure like, oh, you know, we've known this person and we have to treat them with kid gloves. Well, then, then people in other churches who have an interest, they should have an interest in honoring the Lord, not respecting persons, then, then I had to be confirmed by them who I served in a trial capacity. Guess who was one of those? Reverend Rich Kukin, who's you know, now 40 years in the ministry. Praise God for that. And, um, and practice preaching in many other churches where they might have said, like, you know, we don't know about this. Like, this is not going well. Any of them, you know, could say so. Then further confirmed by the, you know, professors of Mid-America who are all long-time tested, you know, leaders of churches. Then publicly tested by the leaders of many churches in the central classes. Let's say formally, you know, examined by 30 men at that particular time for hours and hours in public, right, on doctrine and life and, and all these things that are a part of ministerial training. Only then, only then did I come to West Sayville where you could test my labors. Um, and then finally, um, with the church agreeing that it should go forward, then an ordination exam by the leaders of, of the churches in the East, but another 30 or 40 men. This is, you know, how many filters is that? How many different layers of, of, of church filtering goes into that process? It's rather, it's rather critical uh, that, that we see men tested and ordained in a way that, um, that demonstrates it's not possible for someone to thrust themselves forward. It's not possible for someone to just say, I want to do it, so I will. It's not possible without many different layers of testing. Um, quite a process with kingdom-minded people beginning, middle, and end all interested in the same goal, right? That God's church is a spiritual church and that it's not merely, you know, a worldly power play or a place for our own ambitions or a place for our own desires, you know, to run rampant. Um, we, we are determined to think this way and to test everything, right? To test what is spiritual and what is, you know, our pride kick, you know, popping up uh, and our ambition popping up. And this is a constant test that we have to do to ourselves, but it is especially uh, and directly commanded, right, that those who would be ministers, elders, deacons, uh, that they're meant to be tested thoroughly before they serve. And we continue to be a part of this process. We're talking even now about the opportunity you know, to train students in the future or to have students come here as interns and practice preaching and allow the church to continue to be one of those you know, filters 
that helps determine, you know, workers that are fit for the harvest field. That's an honorable work that we can do together. Uh, so this is, this is the nature of our confession. Everyone should be careful not to, you know, not to, to ram themselves forward, but to see that God is honored before ourselves. And this is especially critical for church leadership. In the second place in our confession, we see that the, the authority of ministers is differentiated from elders and deacons regarding the scope of their authority. Elders are connected primary, primarily to the local church in their authority. And you'll notice, right, that we don't, we don't request outside approval to ordain elders in our church. We didn't go ask anyone. We, we handled that locally, and it's because the scope of the authority of an elder is local, similarly with the deacon. Um, and it's illogical. It should be evident to us. It would be illogical to say that a man can live on Long Island, know the, the flock intimately, you know, shepherd and care for the flock, while simultaneously being the close spiritual leader of the people in Atlanta. You know, like, you can't live two lives. You can't, you can't live genuinely in two places um, when they're distant. It's, it's not possible. The, the, the office is not built that way. It's made to be local in authority. So uh, the work of an elder is not a universal office in quite the same way that the minister is. By comparison, the preaching of God's word and the ministry of the sacraments are not bound to one church only. And the, pre, uh, you know, the, the preaching and the sacraments then are, are in the purview of the minister because they apply, they apply to the entire church, right? Wherever it is, I could go and preach and administer the sacrament in Atlanta as easily as anywhere else. The word of God is not bound to a local scope. So that's the, that's the difference. Um, the preaching of the gospel is a function that is universal in the name of Jesus. So the function of a minister crosses boundaries by its very nature um, that the other offices do not cross. And inasmuch as the word of Christ has to hold sway everywhere in every church, then the minister of the word maintains their authority to preach it in every church and to sign and seal it at the table and at the fountain of baptism. And there's nothing strange about that thought, um, but it's, it's the nature of the gospel ministry of which Christ is the head. So uh, the, their authority and their office is maintained, we, we you know, say, it's maintained uh, wherever they go. And, and finally, all of the careful, spiritual, prayerful choosing uh, and training of men for the offices of the church will be vain. It will be an exercise in futility and vanity unless we willingly and obediently follow the leaders that we have, that we have said are leading in the name of Jesus. If we have prayerfully recognized men to lead as ministers, to lead as elders, to lead as deacons in Jesus' name, because they have the qualities that fit with his instructions for the church and his careful pattern and design. And if we have ordained them to that work in an orderly and prayerful, lawful way, 
according to God's word, then it follows that our submission and obedience to their leadership is required by Jesus. Anything else is self-defeating. Anything else is disorderly. Anything else is vanity. It's to treat as a light thing this work that Jesus is doing in our midst. They serve at Christ's direction. And this is not for our harm, says Hebrews 13, but for our good. And it serves the spiritual good of the whole body. James 3 helps us in the practical evaluation of heavenly wisdom present in the church. It's not, it's not hard to picture the, the chain of supply for the church. It's God, as it were, from heaven pouring down through his word and spirit all the blessings of heaven into the church. And, and we need that to be our source, and we need that to be our supply, and not to be drawing from the ways of this world. So if we're practicing what comes from God above, where Christ reigns even now, then according to James, we would act in the meekness of wisdom. We would act in a way that's pure, in a way that's, that's peaceable, that's gentle, that's reasonable, that's merciful, that's impartial, and sincere in our actions and attitudes. And this will help us see through many mere earthly matters with better spiritual vision. And that for us is of great value, to see with the eyes of faith, to evaluate our lives according to heavenly wisdom, in, you know, in a busy house, my house is busy, loading the dishwasher is a very, very regular chore. Is it two times a day? Is it three times a day? I hope it's not more than three. But a person might say, you know, someone in the house, someone might say, you know, you just shove everything in and it gets clean. But what if, you know, but what if dad should say, please, please, this time, Put the bowls all on the top facing a certain way and all the cups on the bottom facing a certain way. Why? Uh, you know, why? Well, you know, maybe, maybe so I can fit something else, right, that, that's out of sight, but that needs also to fit in there. Maybe, maybe because it'll get cleaner that way. Maybe uh, for some other reason. You know, what about mowing the lawn? I, I don't this one's hypothetical because I don't mow the lawn. We have a service that, that mows the lawn. But what if, you know, this is a regular chore and once upon a time I mowed many, many, many lawns. What if, for whatever reason, right, dad asks, you know, hey, can you please do the backyard first this time and then the front? Why? Oh, you know, is, it, is this a matter for a pitched battle? Is this another, a matter for anger, a matter for dispute, a matter for resistance? You know, does it have to be? No. Not according, you know, not according to, you know, uh, what we're reading here, right? Think about it. The pastor preaches about certain things. Why does he, you know, why does he focus here? Why does he always talk about this? Why does he say, you know, such and such a thing? Is it even important? You know, the elders make corrections. They make rebukes. They ask for certain kinds of obedience, certain kinds of service. Why did he say that to me? That's, it's not even important. You know, it doesn't make any sense. You know, what's, what's the big deal about this? You know, why are they bringing it up? The deacons ask for certain kinds of service. The deacons point out certain needs. 
They can't always explain why without betraying confidences or doing harm, causing damage instead of causing healing. Why do they ask me to do this or that? This is, a, this is a very similar issue in the life of the church. If the, goal, if the goal is a spiritual mind, one mind, one spiritual goal, that is to honor Jesus and to advance the knowledge of him and his gospel, then the task of minister and elder and deacon requires special and thoughtful esteem. Think well of them. Think well of them on purpose. It, they require, they require it, the, the mission, the commission requires obedience for Jesus' sake. The Bible says for a minister who labors in God's word, double honor. What does that mean? You know, double honor, right? Except that I, I, I go out of my way. I go out of my way to think well of them for a reason so that, that there would be no hindrance to that work of, of pouring out of doling out, of, of showing and signing and, and explaining and teaching and e exemplifying the word of God and the, the beauty of Christ as much as possible. For the sake of, of the knowledge of Christ, um, we, would, we would give special esteem, even double honor, so that we could make sure nothing is snagging, nothing is sticking, nothing is held back in our shared purpose, which is to glorify the Lord. There is a reason, right? And beyond that, the devil is a real adversary, a convincing liar, and looking for ways you know, to muddle and to blunt and to neutralize the, the good work of the church at every turn. The world is a real adversary and always contrary to our faith. We kind of talked about this, that this morning. No one is out there encouraging women to godly womanhood. They're all, they're all out there mocking real womanhood and, and holy womanhood. They're all out there against you. No one is encouraging you to do it except, except inside. The world is no friend of ours to be faithful, to be honorable, to be modest, to be pure, to, to live holy life. The world is no friend of ours. We have real adversaries in the devil and the world and our own flesh. Our own hearts, right, are prone to deception and idolatry and pride. We know this is true. Our own sinful flesh makes us vain. It makes us self-centered. That's a threatening problem. We're so prone to independence and self-deception, it comes naturally to us to say, I don't like it. You know, I don't, I don't want it. I don't like it. No one tells me what to do. You know, we talk about this all the time because it's a real threat. Nobody tells me what to do. Um, we, have this, we have this in us, and it's our Christian work, it's holy work, to strangle and to uproot and to kill, right, the, the, the rebel, the proud, the dishonorable ambitions of our hearts. James 3 teaches that, and this is important, many who claim to have heavenly wisdom, they don't deliver, right? So, so if, if it was that simple, 
you know, that we wouldn't really have to talk about it this way. But many people who claim to have wisdom from God, they are unspiritual. They are earthly. They even demonic, it says, because they bring not the holy wisdom of God, but they bring bitter jealousy. They bring selfish ambition. They're false to the truth. That's not the wisdom that comes from above. So, so we commit acts of jealousy, big ones and small ones, but then we lie to ourselves and say, that's not demonic. But here, it's, it plainly says it's unspiritual and it's my jealousy is demonic. My jealousy is uns... Yes, right? Just like we say, my words, they're just words. that It doesn't reflect on my heart. That's what we talked about before. Well, this, this is very similar in principle, right? My selfish ambition, I want to put myself before others. I listen to no one but myself. It's my way, my rules, etc. You know, this selfish ambition that I have, this is unspiritual, earthbound, even demonic? Yes. And, and that's the plain message of James 3. We have a problem where we think we are wise, but all we are is wise in our own eyes. We, we think we have heavenly spiritual wisdom. We're spiritual people, everybody says, but the fruits don't show it. Well, here, heavenly wisdom is identified. It's identified as as pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, merciful, impartial, and sincere. That's very beautiful. So this is, uh, you know, this is what we're wrestling with. We're wrestling with this thought that we have real opposition and that we ourselves are prone, we are prone to selfish ambition and jealousy and earthly attitudes. And Hebrews 13, you know, it, it sort of it talks about this and says, if we act this way, if we live this way, particularly as it relates to the leaders of the church, it will make the church a groaning misery instead of a place of joy. Think about the life of the church and your pastor and your elders and your, and your deacons. They're accountable to Jesus for the good of the whole flock, charged to keep them spiritually safe. It requires extra effort, extra attention, sober-mindedness to, to take you know, care within the church, not to find fault with them, not to grumble, not to quarrel, not to fight with them, or with one another, so that the church can focus on its mission as much as possible, and we can shake off every hindrance and untangle every knot and, and race you know, for God's kingdom. You, know, you can think of it like a parent. We've got a lot of new babies in the church. And um, you can see by the fact that a lot of the babies are gone right now that it's difficult, right? It's difficult to have kids in church, little babies especially. It's hard to focus, right? Very hard to focus when things are going well. They, you know, they still need to eat. They still need to be changed. They still need, you know, they need, need, need. And at best, parents are trading off. You get to listen this week, and I'll listen next week because we're, we're trading duties, we're trading responsibilities. So focused worship for mom or dad, rather difficult. Even a fleeting possibility for, you know, for that phase of life. And we do the best we can, uh, but that's, you know, that's the situation we're in. You know, now, you know, what about when you've got the toddler, really truly, that's throwing a tantrum? 
Is it possible for you, when your toddler's throwing a tantrum, to, you know, to just like handle your checkbook or whatever, handle your bills? Is it possible for you to completely ignore that and, uh, you know, and, and be on the phone and make a doctor's appointment? Or is it like, I gotta deal with this, I can't, you know, I gotta hang up. I can't get done whatever I thought I was gonna get done. I can't produce uh, you know, any, any more or go forward because I'm dealing with a tantruming child. I'm dealing with conflict and, and trouble, uh, whether great or small. Um, you know, so is it possible, like, I, I can quietly, gently direct my other kids, you know, and what they need while one kid is freaking out? Usually no. Usually it's impossible. Your, you know, your pastor, what will he do? What will your elders do? What will your deacons do? If you won't esteem them for the sake of their labors in Jesus' name, they won't, they won't die, but they won't get any progress, right? They won't, they won't just immediately fall apart because you dishonor them or because you tantrum in a way that takes all of their attention or because you refuse, you refuse to, to make their work a light. They won't, they won't immediately die and the church won't immediately like start on fire and explode. True, but their progress will be Creeping, you know, it will be it will slow down to a drip. Their their effectiveness will be blunted, right? They won't be sharp. They'll be dull. Uh, they won't go far. They won't get the mileage that they might otherwise get. You know, what will it do to their labors? And what will it do to the church? There are many with needs and few to meet the needs. There are unspoken burdens and matters under the surface that, you know, that require attention, all kinds of attention, all kinds of prayer, all kinds of need. And, uh, you know, sometimes heavier, sometimes less, sometimes it makes my insides crinkle, sometimes my insides are okay. Uh, it, these, you know, these things are always going on. And if we, if we in the church will not take this seriously, God's holy order within the church, if we won't Consider the, the peace you know, and the tranquility of the church, if we won't consider its unity, if we won't consider the special esteem that God demands for the sake of that work, it will just, it will become mediocre. It will become weakened to the point of, of you know, being the church of mediocrity instead of the church advancing through, you know, advancing amazingly through barriers and through trials and through the darkness with the light of Christ. And that's a sad thought to, to instead of being the shining light, right, to be navel-gazing as a congregation, to be just always looking inwardly and always in, you know, internal conflict. This is, this is what we risk when we harbor grudges in the church and grumbling and ill, you know, ill thoughts, resentments toward our leaders or toward other members instead of dealing with them. Little stress fractures, little cracks in the church. We have to esteem them highly. They're serving in a special way for Jesus' sake. And if they ask you to stack the bowls on the top rack and the cups on the bottom rack, you know, take no offense, right? 
And if they ask, you know, you know, for any number of things, apply heavenly wisdom. Right? It's, it's, full of, it's full of good fruits. We should obey them patiently for the sake of Christ and of his household. Make peace with them and promote peace with them. And God the Father will commend you for it. James says a harvest of righteousness comes from such wise and obedient behavior. It's like planting peace and harvesting righteousness. I've always found that an interesting phrase. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's, a, that's an interesting turn of phrase. And it's hard for me to picture, but I picture it that way, right? Sowing, sowing in peace and reaping in righteousness, sowing righteously, reaping in peace. It's a very beautiful thought. You know, what does that look like? We want... We want the report about West Sayville to be they obey Jesus when nobody is watching. You know, nobody is twisting their arm. Nobody is handcuffing them. Nobody is putting razor wire on both, you know, so that they, but, but they obey him willingly. They imitate him without threats, without threats of punishment, without without anyone wagging a finger at them. That's, that's a beautiful picture, you know, the willing worshiper, the willing servant, the, you know, the, the sober-minded, serious Christian. We apply heavenly wisdom and say, for the sake of the peace of God's house, for the effectiveness of its leadership and the fruitfulness of the whole body, I will, I will esteem Christ above all, his messengers and representatives as I have opportunity and love my neighbor as myself. All of this to serve the unity of the church and its mission. Take what your pastor teaches or what your elders teach, you know, pray on it, carry it further. Take what they ask of you, do it twice over, pray for them. Pray that they would be successful. It's the same principle as in marriage, right? In marriage... Right? Uh, in marriages that are careening towards divorce, very often it's, you know, I relish the failures of my spouse. I relish their faults and I, and I pounce on their faults, you know, as a way to punish them or as a way to, st you know, stick it in their face that I'm something and they're not or whatever it may be. There's a lot of dysfunction in marriage that this way, but we should want, we should want our spouse to succeed, not fail and encourage their successes and make much of their successes with the hope that they will be even more fruitful, more successful in, you know, in good things. And so it is with the leaders of the church, right? We, we need them to succeed, and Hebrews is very plain on this. It's no advantage to you if they stumble and falter and fail. It's an advantage if they succeed. Their goal is to build up and edify and, and you know, the edifice of, of the church. If that's their goal, then you need them to succeed. And their success is your success. But tearing them down, just like tearing down our spouse, is sure, it's sure to hurt us. Not only them, but us, all of us. So we have to be, we have to be uh, ready to esteem them for the sake of their work. 
We need our spiritual leaders to succeed and be fruitful everywhere. And the task of church building is important so that we would say, for us, we should be so spiritually responsible, right, that we make our leaders, uh, you know, joyful. We, we, they come asking about me, and they say, no, this is going fine. You know, like there's, there's, you know, there's only... There's only a little, you know, pruning here or there. Be so spiritually accountable that we cause them to rejoice to Jesus. You know, I don't have to pry things out of people. They, their lives are open, right? They're so spiritually engaged. I have to think of ways to encourage them or to feed them because they're outpacing, their growth is outpacing, you know, what we're providing for them. Be so spiritually open and communicative that they know what to pray for you. And we do pray, right? We do pray often for you and often late into the night for you. And when we act this way, we'll be plain that the Christian church is not our, it's not our hobby. It's not our weekend warrior interest. We are the household of God, bought with the blood of Jesus the church that has received his spirit, the church into which God is pouring and pouring and pouring all of his love and mercy and forgiveness, his heavenly wisdom. It's present here with us. Christ is ours, and the gifts that God has given through him, they belong to us, and we are using them, and it's plain, it's obvious. Then the cross will, uh, you know, will shine before the eyes of all, and they'll see it in the church. Heavenly Father, we pray that these things we would put to practice in a practical way so that, Lord, our spirituality serves this critical uh, commission that you've given, that the life of the church uh, is meant for good fruit, that the life of the church is meant to be productive for spiritual growth, that the life of the body is meant to bring relief to the hurting, it's meant to bring knowledge to the immature and wisdom to those uh, who lack wisdom. It's meant to bring accountability, repentance, and peace in the lives of those who are in tumult or enslaved and trapped by various sins. Lord, that we are meant to grow from the good teaching and from the good instruction and from the good example of the leaders of the congregation. And, Father, that we are meant to take what we have from them and put it to practice and go far with it. We are meant, Lord, to honor you by uh, practicing the same meekness and purity and humility that we see in Jesus with those right around us. So that our spirituality is not only mysterious uh, and bound up in the heavenly blessings of Christ, but it is also practiced and plain in the fruits we bear now. And in that way, Lord, grasping onto both the mystery and also the very clear obedience that we have in Christ, uh, we will live a truly spiritual life. So hear our prayer, Lord. Uh, we pray that you would provide for all of these things, the wisdom, the zeal, and the resources Lord, the desire and also the opportunity. All of this is in your hands to give, and we know, Lord, that you are generous with us. We pray in Jesus' name.